and welcome to Hospice Insights, The Lawn Beyond, where we connect you to what matters in the ever-changing world of hospice and palliative care. Hospice Innovator Series, a conversation with Kathleen Benton, CEO of Hospice Savannah. I'm so happy to share my wide-ranging conversation with Dr. Kathleen Benton, where we explore how good business planning starts and ends with good questions and strong ethics. Applying a bi-local philosophy to healthcare, Kathleen sees her future entwined with that of her community and that their needs define her organization's business plan, whether it be expanding palliative care opportunities, opening a vaccination center, or deepening existing local partnerships, Kathleen brings a passion and purpose to what she does and sees opportunities beyond what has traditionally been in the hospice lane. I find Kathleen's wit and good humor contagious and admire her energy to do the work that is needed and trust in the questions to lead the path forward. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Kathleen, I'm so happy that you're you're here and joining me for for this great conversation. So uh, I'm excited as well. Thank you for for making the time. And so, so you and I uh, have gotten to know each other over the years, and I always learn something new when I I talk to you. Um, but so to catch everyone else up on on things I already know about you, that that sort of start in the beginning because in this innovator series, I really want to give folks a sense of how you came to be, right? I mean, I think knowing what you're doing now, it's really informed by, you know, how you got there and, and whatnot. So tell me a little bit about um, where you grew up and and uh, where that was. And um, what did you love when you were growing up? What did you love to do? It's just interesting. I was just in orientation with some new staff and I was telling this story. Um, I, I'm from Savannah. Um, I went away for many years for school and, and work, but um, rooted here and I'm a, a true lover of this culture and community, but um, really grew up quite fast um, when I was five. My youngest brother was born with the same disease as the elephant man. And I think when someone young has such an awareness of something so serious and mortality and, um, you know, sees fear in their parents and suffering, it, it kind of shapes the way you developed and and maybe the rate at which you grow up. So that said, what did I love to do? Well, I was an eight-year-old with a lab coat on all the time. I was, I was ready to be a professional uh, from day one. I, I needed to skip over all this childish nonsense to get straight to the point. Well, and you you have an it's an art form. You get to the point, and you don't miss mince words, which I I really appreciate about you. Um, and so, in in terms of um, growing up, then it sounds like healthcare was a part of your life uh, from a very early age. And and um, I, I do want to do a, a series with you on our end of life conversations and perspectives podcast series, because I think the books you've written, which you you shared with me, um, are really, I like sort of couldn't put it down in terms of just, the, I feel like some of these things, when you talk about end of life conversations, they are so simple, but at the same time, super radical. And, and I think that they come from the, the perspective that you bring to that, I think, is really sort of fascinating. But so so healthcare was uh, something you were experiencing. So 
you talked about lab coat. Did you want to be a clinician or, and was it driven by, hey, people are really helping my brother in his life. I want to be a helper too. Or was it, I see a lot of problems with how my brother's care is and I want to make it better. I think it was something subconscious and unknown. And then the tangible piece was just that I was a little know-it-all bossy wanting to be in control kind of kind of gal and I was always very impressed by the physicians and what they were able to do likely what they were able to do for my brother um he did you know he ended up with 110 surgeries so we were in the hospital all the time and yet we were always coming out for Disney World and get to get back to life as usual because they did such a good job of keeping him well so yeah it was it was certainly a respect for that authority and um, and just seeing the purpose, the purpose in that career. Mm. The hospital system became like my apple pie in the oven. I can remember when my, my father said, why are you going into healthcare? You had to grow up in it. I said, that's the very reason, you know, it's, it's, it fuels, it's fueled with nostalgia for me. And uh, it's where I find comfort and, and peace. And I guess that's because it was, it was what I experienced. And I think that um, one of the many things I love about hospice people, um, and I'm going to talk about how you came to hospice in a second, but I think that they lean into something that pretty much no one else does, of which is, and, and it's, and being with it and the whole idea of bearing witness and, and, um, you know, they're in your book, the the skill of end of life communications for clinicians of just meeting people where they're at and like being in it with people as opposed to like, I'm on the outside and, and, and whatnot. And I don't know if that, I see you as a very, I'm in it with you kind of person. And I don't know if, if that's the perspective you bring to healthcare, because obviously you're in it with your brother, but you know, and Every patient doesn't have that same personal connection, but I think, you know, that advocacy piece that we talk about uh, that I think is so important um, in in healthcare and end of life care in particular, I, I just think is is um, really important. And so, so anyway, I see you as a person from a very young age having to deal with something that everyone else wants to that makes people feel uncomfortable and really difficult and. And what what is the thing we do with what's difficult is I want to avoid it. I don't want to talk about it or I want to have like all of this um, optimism around like, oh, everything's going to be OK. And, you know, sort of platitudes. And and so I, I, I guess in terms of how in those early experiences you had dealing with healthcare, how did you I mean, did you find it to be hopeful? Yeah, I think, you know, a couple of things. Um, one. Um, somehow the avoidance theory escaped me. Oh, and <laughs> I'm never, you know, I do, I jump right in and that's with my own problems and then also everyone else's. So <laughs> that empathy for whatever a person is going through and the desire to help them undo or get through. And just really the art that I found in healthcare. I mean, I think other folks see the science and, and, and the, the black and the white and the diagnostics and the treatment or the medication. But it, healthcare is so much bigger than that. Um, there's 
there's just so many disciplines and it's so complicated. And I found that all very interesting and in how it was all interwoven. It just, it fueled a certain energy in me. It became, you know, I think everyone hopefully has their, their altruistic pull, you know, for some that may be, you know, those who are less fortunate and, and are not fed. And for some that might be children, but for me, it's the sick. I mean, that's, and, and certainly it was fed by my brother, but it's, it's not just him. It's anyone who is suffering, who, who really is in a different um, neurological spot because they're walking their walk with pain and they're walking their walk with fear and worry and they don't have wellness. I mean, health is wealth and we all know that, especially those of us who have been sick at one time or another. And so for those people who just face life already in that vulnerable place, because forget about the other hierarchy of needs, but just their inherent health is not met, that wellness is not met rather. And um, so, you know, not to get too philosophical, but I, I just have always been taken by that. And I also find that people who suffer are so rich with depth. And mm -hmm. so sit with them and hear their story and their perspective, um, somehow what has, what is different about them than others is the minutia of life is is somehow less important because perspective is is different. So the story of a patient to me, which is probably ultimately what brought me to hospice um, from from even the acute care setting, um, I think is what is the most important part of their entire journey all the way through to the end. You know, finding the purpose, finding the legacy, finding the peace, all within that story. So. You know, for me in my lab coat in the cafeteria, Medical College of Georgia, it was sitting down with patients and families or, you know, pretending to examine them right there in the cafeteria. As they, <laughs> you know, as they allowed me to do as a little child. So um, and I know most people wouldn't resonate with that, um, but, you know, it was a different life. So it's, you know, I, I, I just enjoy it all the way to now. It totally resonates with me because I like to learn people's stories too. I mean, that's why I started this, this podcast and, and the innovator series in particular of hearing people's story and their journey. Cause, cause I, I think another thing that struck me, what you were saying, and, and I think that for better, or for worse, I think sometimes healthcare gets away from our humanness. And so like everything that you're talking about is like, how do you, how do you help people be seen and heard? And, um, so, so everything uh, that was ringing in my head when you were talking was just, just the human to human connection. Like you're not just a problem that needs to be fixed. It is just like people want to know that their lives matter and that people see them and they're suffering and, and talking about that. And, and, you know, healthcare is, is obviously very focused on fixing things, but my uncle Daniel, who I, I've talked about in other podcasts, who is a really important person in my life. And he was a Catholic priest and um, I was dealing with a difficult situation. Um, someone I knew was, was very ill. And, and I said, I, you know, I just don't know how to help. Like, I'm a fix-it person. People call me to fix their problems. And he said to me, 
Meg, you know, I really wish that I dealt with problems that I could actually fix, right? And and so it was like this light bulb moment of, you know, it is, and even the problems that I deal with are not always fixable, but like that mentality of I'm going to fix you, I'm going to fix this problem. And like, I mean, some of that comes like, that's empowering, but also like, then you're not always being with what is, you know, and then you jump right. to the... I assume this is what you want in your health care, but I haven't really asked you because this is what I would want or, you know, I, it's too uncomfortable to talk to you about it or whatever. But so, so there's something that I think if you see people in their humanness and let that be a guide, I think it's not always this fix it mentality, which is, I think, easier sometimes to deal with um, than really sort of digging in and being present with what is, which I, I think that your path to where you are now, so you got a master's in, in uh, medical ethics, right? Correct. I did. Um, from Case Western and um, went on to, to be a practicing clinical ethicist. And, and, you know, that's what you do there is you hear all those stories and what's amazing is um, the change in the conversation doesn't really come to light until you as the professional can verbalize a true understanding of what that patient or that family, that human is trying to tell you. You know, whether it be I'm trying to tell you that I'm not accepting this treatment from the doctor because I'm worried I'll make the wrong choice for my daughter and then my daughter's death will be on me, or I'm trying to tell you that I refuse the DNR order because um, I'm afraid saying don't do anything, I'm giving up. Um, but they don't say it that way. Yeah. So they say it in all the other words that <laughs> come across clear at all. So you really have to listen for that message to be able to then say back, you know, I hear you. And I would be worried too, but let's go through your options and, and let's see what else you could do. Um, and it's just amazing because at the end of the day, clinicians, be they speech pathologists or nutritionists or physicians, they learn so much in their siloed world. And yet at the end of the day, what's the most important thing about healthcare is the ability to put it all together and make it work with the human condition and the patient story. And, and that's the part that equals healing, you know, real healing, whether it's healing to wellness or healing to death or wherever they're at in their journey. Um, but in general, I don't think um, we're at that place, in, in especially in Western healthcare. And so it makes it all the more interesting from an ethical standpoint and how to navigate that and try to put some of that back into this really complicated, uh, intense, intensely siloed system that we've um, created at this point um, and, and make it right for the patient. Mm -hmm. So um, I think about that every day, you know, both in my, in my past career and in my present. So you start, you know, in, in medical ethics, you're, you're talking about, dealing at the individual level, and then you got a doctorate in public health. So then you went to the macro. And, and so what, what led you there and, and what were you wanting to do in public health? 
Well, I find something very interesting in the United States, which is now all unfolded over the last year and has been like a big case study for me, um, just in my own little nerd world, which is that um, public health is so disconnected from healthcare. Yeah. And that that always blew my mind. And the when I became interested in that particular uh, venue was when the post form came out in Georgia. And a lot of people call this something different, but it's physician orders for life-sustaining support uh, treatment. And it's sometimes called most, but it's a transferable DNR is what it is. And uh, do not resuscitate. And so when it came in Georgia, what was interesting was the Department of Community Health, who's over public health, they did the form and then they dumped it onto healthcare with no funding, no plan, no support. And it was like, here you go, here's your form. And I guess the thought was, well, they can just use their form and they'll be good, go, you know, go, go on with your day. Not acknowledging that the implementation of any new policy is really the most important component of any of it. So the funding needed to educate patients on how to use it, uh, working through uh, the Medicare regulations, like the ones that say, um, if you have a physician who's not credentialed in the hospital and they're the ones that sign that form, that doesn't work for the DNR in that hospital. So that's kind of a policy issue. <laughs> All of that stuff had to be untangled and it took years. And I can remember calling our local Department of Public Health and saying, do y'all want to participate in some of these um, educations? And the woman who was, you know, she was on the local level and nurse said, I don't know what that has to do with us. And I said, well, I don't know what it doesn't have to do with you. I mean, it's, it was put down by your department and it's a, it's a huge statewide education and we need to be collaborating. So, you know, fast forward to COVID-19 and here you go. Here is the working example of this um, at a much bigger level. You know, no, not many people will care about POLST because only the ethicists and the lawyers <laughs> care about that document. But a public emergency and a pandemic, people are going to start to notice that those in public health, you know, that are really responsible for the everything of a pandemic need to be connected to those in healthcare who are treating the acutely ill who you know actually are exposed and come down ill with the the um, pandemic and then you know fast forward to our curative effort of this pandemic our vaccination we give it to public health to disperse well healthcare is the ones with all the efficiencies built in we're the ones that had to compete and and we you know we've got the logistics down to a science because we've been in competition world for so long and they're giving this to public health and saying y'all give out all the shots we only need 50 million of them done <laughs> no collaboration no collaboration no immediate collaboration now it's it's happening it's happening and i you know that's it's part of why we became a part of it to 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 nurse that but that all to say that that was my interest, was that I was in a, a niche area of healthcare. And so, you know, I had done the 
like you said, the micro. And I had I had experienced the the uh, siloed field of healthcare that I enjoyed. But what interested me was partnerships and collaboration, getting rid of the redundancies in health, not just healthcare, but health in in our nation. And it occurred to me that the way to do that was the marriage between public health and healthcare. And I can remember, I did my dissertation on palliative care and I got shot down four times by big professors. No, you cannot do your dissertation in palliative care because that has nothing to do with, with public health. And I said, <laughs> quality of life is a measure of public health. How yeah. funny. What are you talking about? So I kept fighting it and fighting it and fighting it. So I had to actually fight just to get the topic. And so it was it just resonated through my whole degree that this this area has got to be put together better. And our healthcare system in general would really thrive if it was. So so anyway, there's the longest story you've ever no. heard. No, well, but I mean, I think it's your your path to what you're doing now is just really interesting. I mean, from you know, early beginnings and sort of your your personal relationship to to health, but also suffering and sort of the good and bad of healthcare. I mean, the miracles that lie in healthcare, and then also, you know, the opportunities that lie when there isn't to fix it anymore. That it's just, you know, and it seems like that that's been a guide in your life and in that piece where people may not think there's something to fix, but there's so much that you can do to alleviate suffering. And that, you know, our idea is fix it, make it better, as opposed to, well, even if, you know, there isn't to fix it, there is tons that that in terms of wellness and and healing, as, as you said, I think is really important. So now, so then, then you get the macro level. So obviously your passion for, for palliative care. And if there's anyone going to fight for their dissertation on four different occasions right. and go head to head with whoever that is, it, it would be you. So, but, but then you, you chose to go and be a CEO of, of a longstanding, well-respected nonprofit, uh, Hospice Savannah. And so, so why why did you choose to to do that? And I guess and maybe just for for those listening who don't know you, um, was that a couple years ago you you took over as CEO? Well, it feels like thirty, but yes, it was only two. Um, okay, and there were a couple of reasons. You know, one was um, I think just a personal life change. You know, I've been walking people through very, very difficult end of life talks for 13 years. And that that's a heavy burnout role. Yeah. That's a confrontational role. That's a one person every month likes you, the rest of the people, not so much. So, you know, it's not a feel good role. At the end of the day, you have to remind yourself what your purpose is. And that's the ethics of what the patient wants and the autonomy there. But Everybody else, not so much. So um, at my brother passed away in 2017. And, you know, while I knew enough to know that you don't make any imminent changes, I did think that I wanted something with a little bit more vision in it. Um, you know, my role, I was a director, but I wasn't a visionary leader. 
And I wanted to be in a position where I felt like I could really feel the healing that I could do for for community members, uh, probably selfishly. The the other piece was that <clears throat> Hospice Savannah was, which I had known very well for many, many years, um, which is a very robust organization and that it has a, a palliative care nonprofit as well, Steward Center, which carries about 1,600 patients. It's a huge palliative care program um, and a foundation, a large foundation <clears throat> that carries multiple programs, including a caregiver institute. So it's a big entity in a, you know, in a small way, but it was going through a lot of struggle and um, financial struggle and visionary struggle and really needed some disruption. And I knew that I was disruptive. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love yeah. that you're disruptive. I mean, but, but I think, and, um, you know, the, the podcast series we have about, uh, you know, corporate, res like restructuring for the future and just like disruption's a bad word, you know, it makes us feel uncomfortable, but it's sort of what we need, right? It's, you know, a softer way of saying change, right? Like right. change, but disruption, it's a little bit more volitional, like change. Sometimes it like happens to you as opposed to I'm having agency here, but, but you know, and I think that you came at a great time and the fact that, you know, you came from different perspectives, I, I think is really helpful because um, I think running a hospice is, I don't know how you can do it and not be connected to the mission and purpose. Like as a lawyer, like, why do I love working with hospices? Like I am connected to their mission and purpose. And I'm pretty, I'm very far removed from that, but like it gives me meaning and purpose in my life. And so I think like being connected to that mission is important and you are a woman of purpose. And I think that, um, and it doesn't mean that I grew up like many people, it's like, I've been in hospice for 30 years and I've, you know, I was a nurse and I became a CEO. And I mean, that's one pathway, but I, I, I feel like your sort of roundabout way to get to where you are now and is, is I think really helpful. And to your point, maybe what the organization needed um, to jumpstart itself in a different way and see a different vision for the future, which um, in my intro, I talk about this idea of when you and I were preparing for this, a couple ideas really sat out with me. One was this idea by local and being really driven because I asked you how you do business planning. You're like, well, but I came up with this by local idea and like, what does my community need? And so that really struck me and I want to explore that with you. And then the other um, thing is sort of this idea of like not being limited, but what, what hospice does, as opposed right. to if you're driven by what your community needs, you can repurpose your skills in new and different ways. And so you don't need to always stay in your lane. Like you don't need to be prim and proper, you know, you can have like elbows and like veer into the other lane. And like, not only is that exciting, but you're also going to learn more things about, you know, what your community needs if you're open into saying, oh, well, we don't do that. We don't, we're not a vaccination center. We've never done that. Like that's right. Not, 
that's not our work to do. And so, so I wanted to, to unpack this a bit because I thought it was a different way to approach sort of business planning, but also the problems of today. And so this, tell me a bit more about this buy local and, and applying that to healthcare. You know, through the pandemic, it's you hear it everywhere because especially it's especially focused on restaurants because, you know, we're trying to encourage we all want to keep our small businesses going. That's what has made up America for 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 ages. And so it, you know, recently it got me thinking about the way of healthcare. And yes, we sell our mission as we're the only nonprofit. We're not in a CON state, so I compete about it against 23 other hospices and Savannah's just not that big. The reality is, and, and the question I asked my community when I um, you know, kind of started this tag of buy local is what are those healthcare entities? What are those hospices doing during this pandemic for our community? Because number one, um, what I can tell you here in Savannah, now I can't speak for everywhere, is that when COVID hit, hospices explored, should we take COVID patients? Do we know how to take COVID patients? We don't do a whole lot of infectious disease. How do we do this? Well, I can tell you that my hospice took the first COVID patient in our town at the beginning of March. It was a couple, they both died of COVID, the husband in the hospital and the wife, we took her home. And the stigma was great. It wasn't just great with the other hospices who weren't doing it yet. It's expensive. You know, you've got all your PPE investments you've got to make and figure out staffing and staff's not thrilled and all those things we had to face in the beginning of this that seemed like years ago at this point. Um, I can remember taking care of this woman. The the place we were, you know, it, it was to, to bring her home, you know, to her apartment building was a big deal because that disease was so stigmatized. No one wanted to be around it. Um, but this hospice was never not going to do that because the community was hit with COVID. And so we were taking care of COVID. End of discussion. And the same has been true of the vaccination clinics. Now, many other states have done this differently and possibly they achieved, you know, early sustainable vaccination sites with their departments of public health. But our Department of Public Health is not well-funded. And when we got ours in December, when we got our vaccinations, like my staff and all, I had already provide, uh, applied for a provider license. And I saw that they needed partners. And I thought, why in the world would I not do it? Because I have clinicians who can give shots and I have space all around town. If I don't have space, I'll beg space. I only have events every other Wednesday when it's not a pandemic world. So, you know, all of these things that we needed, volunteers, for heaven's sakes, hospices are wrought with volunteers. Um, we can bring them in to do the administrative uh, intake. Um, we've got an IT department. We can do all this electronically um, and we can vaccinate. And, and that's the point in Buy Local is that, yes, I'm a hospice and sure, you can compare me to other hospices in the area, but, there's no comparison to an entity that is going to literally invest in your community when the community need is there. And that is what it means to buy local in healthcare. We have one local hospital system here and the same is true for them. They vaccinated, they do for the indigent, they take a ton of charity care, 
And that's because they're vested in this community. And I think more people should think about that. And more of our hospices, our nonprofit community-based hospices, should be shouting that from the rooftops because it is something. We, we have a civic duty to our community. We're um, situated in our community. We know the heavy hitters. We know the leaders. We know the key stakeholders. And that means something in healthcare. And possibly that focus has, has fallen short a little bit. So, you know, that's number one of what you, of what you just mentioned. The other piece is about staying in your own lane, and I never stay in my own lane, so sometimes <laughs> I need to be reeled back in. But, but I think the positive that comes with that is that you don't limit yourself, that you do look for, you know, where is your skill set? And yes, the vaccination clinic is certainly an example, but another example I'll give is we have this Caregiver Institute um, and it became um, abundantly clear that an, an untapped um, community here was autistic um, children and their caregivers. And we started thinking, well, why, you know, why aren't we doing for them? We need to offer something for them. It's not just the, the caregivers of those with dementia or those who will eventually be hospice patients that we're looking to help. We're looking to help that community needs. So we, we planned a program effort for those particular caregivers. And I think it's really just an effort to, you know, you can't do everything, but you can recognize your strengths. And when there is the opportunity to collaborate with partners in your community who are doing it, where you can say, I'll take a piece of it, you know, I'll just mm. take a piece of it because I am community vested and it's very easy for me to do this piece because I have those skilled people or I have this amazing venue. You know, I have a hospice house where you can bring your elderly who want to get out and have a wonderful picnic. No one really thinks about going picnicking at a hospice house, but it can be done and it's <laughs> done. And um, and I think it's just um, an out of the box mentality. And I I. What I have found is it's been the very joy of, of being a hospice leader because, you know, you don't have a thumb on you from a big corporate body. So you have some freedom and you truly are vested in the culture and community around you. So you can walk around with an open mind and when a need is pitched, you know, you can really brainstorm and see where you might fit into that. And um, and I think that's the beauty of hospices because we just have such a wealth of discipline and knowledge, you know, within the um, within the employees that are a part of a, a mission-driven community hospice. I totally agree. And, and the fact that, um, again, I still think it's radical, even though the hospice benefit is almost 40 years old of, doing this interdisciplinary sort of human, like speaking to your humanity um, model of care that uses volunteers um, as a, as a core member and, and being a, you know, connected to your community in that way. But, but I think you're right is our ability to maybe get upstream in healthcare, which is what we keep talking about um, of how we need to transform we're really able to 
to do that because we're not siloed and I do this subspecialty. I mean, we have social workers and physicians and, 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 um, you know, there is a lot of, uh, advanced illness and chronic illness and, and we really have the skill sets to, to handle that. And also providing care in the home is completely different than in a controlled setting of a facility. I mean, your ability to do things when it's, I control the environment. I see when you show up for work. I, you know, see what you do. I mean, to build a model of care where it is, it is essentially out in the community. It is not a place and it is, we are, going in and out of people's homes every day. It's just, it's really, it's, it's very different. And, and so, but I think what you said is important in the stay in the same lane doesn't mean sort of a schizophrenic idea of like, I'm going to do this or this. It's sort of, how can I use my core competencies in different ways to solve different community problems? And, and I think what you said is important about like, I don't need to solve the whole problem, but if I am connected to my community and have collaborations and partnerships, I can lend a hand in this way and do this because of the core competencies I have. And so not being with blinders on as well, I only care with people who have a six month prognosis. Well, all of the things that we do for people, people pretty much every human would benefit from that, um, you know? And, and so I, I just, I think that's a cool way of looking at things in terms of, it doesn't mean not being focused in terms of, you know, trying to do things that you're not good at, but I think being open to seeing yourself in a different way and not being limited by that. And um, so, so, but I guess in terms of, you know, being a disruptor and you talked about, you know, the sort of unpopular role you're used to having where one person likes you a month. I mean, what what stymies you? Like, what is a challenge? Because you're a person of action. So I'd imagine the speed of which to get things done can be frustrating. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, mostly frustrating for the people I surround myself with. <laughs> They're all exhausted. Yeah. Point. But no, but um because I, I've been very impressed by this organization as far as I have brought in a lot of new new people, new leaders, um, but they, they've kept up to the pace that I've tried to push them to. Um, so I found it, um, that's not an issue actually. Um, it, it was harder working in a big hospital system because of course, you know, the bigger an entity, I mean, the more tape, the more committees it's got to go through before it comes out and gets done. So, um, but I, you know, the, the reverse side of it is I always say, you know, with our organization, we're too small to be big and we're too big to be small. So it's a, it's a hard place to sit in, you know, you don't necessarily have all that support that you need because you're just not big enough. Um, but there's a lot to do because there are a lot of employees, 170 employees here, and that's it's a big job. But I think my previous job prepared me well as far as the not being well liked all the time, because whether you call it disruption or change, you know, it does not usually fall on very happy ears. Um, anyone. I mean, everyone is opposed to change. And there's had to be a lot of change here um, in the process, 
it wasn't a very uh, data and data. We needed a lot mm, yeah. than they were used to. Um, and just in general and just our flow and a lot of renegotiating contracts, different vendors. And um, it's been a large overhaul, I will say. Um, yeah. Especially when you just snap COVID right in the middle of it. You know? <laughs> I could have done without that for this overhaul. But then again, it has brought its own little blessings with it. So I'm, you know, try to, it is what it is. Um, but I'm not done. I mean, I still have a lot of, of work to do here. But the organization is doing really well. So um, it's it's an ongoing effort with lots of light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. I I see you as a, a person of action that you're a do, do, do. I mean, every time I talk to you, you're sort of, you know, coming up with a, another idea or expanding some type of partnership. Someone is now funding something for, for you all that you <laughs> twisted their arm into. And I guess, where does that come from? I mean, I, I too, I need sort of constant change and new ideas. And I guess, where do you think that drive to do and change and embracing change comes from in you? I don't know. I just, I have a lot of energy. I, you know, I always have. And you know what I think it is more than anything? It's not, it's not even that. It's not anything to, it's not a, I mean, I guess it's certainly a personality issue as far as uh, being very type A, but it's, it's, it's just that purpose-driven life book kind of thing that, mm. you know, my husband always says, do you always have to be productive? And it's kind of like the answer is yes. <laughs> I know. Everybody in my house loves when I sleep in because <laughs> there's no productivity going on, you know. But as soon as my feet hit the floor, there there are tasks. So um, and I, you know, I don't really know. I mean, I've tried to psychoanalyze myself there, but I think some of it is, like I said, the awareness of mortality. I mean, when you don't think that. You have a real long life to live, which is kind of how I have always felt as far as because I've always been aware of just how precious our time is and that, you know, some get 80 and 90 and 100 years and others just don't, that we need to do something of purpose and meaning. And then in general, I I find ha the greatest happiness in helping people. Mm. I don't say that to be fluffy, but I just, I'm just being honest. I mean, I, and I've teach my kids this, I have three children and I teach them this, that too, that you will not find happiness in success because it will go and you will not find it in money because it will go, you know, and pleasures, you know, they just are a roller coaster. But when you help someone or when you're fixated on helping someone, what you really find is perspective. And I mean, that's a truly selfish thing. I'm not even talking about what you're doing for them. I'm talking about what you're taking from that. Is mm -hmm. that what's going on with you? There is somebody out there that has it far worse. So um, I like to keep myself vested in that perspective, you know, and I think you do that by diving in every day and learning the stories of people around you. And that usually leads to, 
tasks to be done. I love that. Well, and and you sound like a Stoic. So I um, really like Stoic philosophy and, and two of the things you said sort of fall in that bucket. One is is perspective. And, and I feel like I too think that perspective is like the most important thing in the world. And um, and I think you get that from other people, but also just like being aware of the world around you. Like I, we're recording this in spring and I live in Madison, Wisconsin. And like, how do you know that the daffodils, like, how do they know when to come up and they like break through leaves? Like just the miracle of the world that's around you and like being aware of, and, and also uh, obviously the darkness of winter and then the perspective of really then being able to enjoy you know, the spring or summer or whatever. But I think that perspective and also in the lives of others and that we too may be, you know, if we have the good fortune to live a long time, we're going to be old and have problems and and right. whatever. And it's, and so I, I think it's that perspective and how that enriches your daily life. And then I think um, another thing you said that, that really resonates with me is sort of the, mortality and living with your mortality on a daily basis and how that I have this memento more chart, which is, um, it has a box for every week of your life and it goes to like 80 or something. And then you scratch, like you fill it in every single week. It's a stoic thing, um, of just paying attention. Cause you realize like, there's not that many boxes, you know, I'm 46 and like, I've lived over half my life, like if I'm lucky, you know, and, and right. just sort of creating urgency. And I think some people, when I tell them I have this, they're like, oh my God, they have great aversion to that. And I think it just provides clarity to like just a sense of urgency and not in a anxiety driven way, but like, I want to use my time and I want to develop the parts of myself and, and contribute to the world. I mean, it just, I, I don't know. I find it a, a place of, of great sort of energy. And, and so it's interesting that you find that, that too. Um, because if, if I asked that question to myself, I sort of feel like I would have given the same answer uh, that you did, which is, I guess, why we, we have affinity for, for one another. But um, so what, one of the, the things I wanted to ask you about, and uh, when I talk to CEOs, I oftentimes ask them about governance questions and how you deal with your board and, and tips or things that, that you found to be helpful in terms of obviously when you're a community nonprofit, you have a community uh, of board members that that you obviously need to bring along for the ride. And I, I guess are there their strategies or tips or how do you approach that relationship? Well the good news is I have three boards. So uh, it's a lot <laughs> <laughs> um I constantly remind my leadership team about that. Like, I know y'all need a lot from me, but remember I've got 37 other people out there who, you know, all need their time. Um, but, uh, you know, I, the interestingly enough, I took the same approach that I took with, you know, the patients and families that I met with in the ICUs, which is that immediately, it's actually was task number one when I came here. Um, I wanted to meet 
and develop a rapport with every single one of those board members. So that was a lot of my time um, the first four or five months. I mean, my my assistant will tell you, I mean, I had like eight meetings a day to be able to, to call in because it was going to take more than one sit down to really get to know them. And so it was individual sit down with every single one of them over coffee or lunch or whatever, and then do it all again. And so now I've gotten to the point where, you know, when I send him a birthday card, I know to ask about their son because I know that he's graduating from college because I remember that. And to me, that I mean, that's what a board is looking for is rapport and transparency. Mm. So, you know, they know me. And when something comes up, they know I'm going to talk to them about it. You know, I'm I'm not going to ask them for everything because, you know, I, you know, try to keep them out of the weeds. That's not their job. And they certainly don't have the time for it. But many of our board members have been around many, many terms and many, many years. Some um, honorary or emeritus members since the beginning of hospice. Mm. And so their vested interest is above everyone's. They want to see it stay and sustain. And so I have to be mindful of that and keep them in the loop. You know, it's it's really when they're surprised when we have a when we have an issue. And I did have to make some very quick changes here. You know, I mean, very quick changes in leadership and and some of the ways we were doing things, because, frankly, it had it just had to be done um, for financial reasons and and quality reasons. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure they questioned it, but I always tried to stay ahead and and talk to them about why. And I was fortunate that they were mostly, mostly supportive of it. And now, you know, I find that it's really a non-issue because this, honestly, this weekend, I went to two events for different board members. You know, one had a um, low country boil down the street from me and I went to that. And the other one had a son who got married and I went to that. So um, now it's a relationship and mm-hmm. makes it a lot easier because now it's, I'm just nurturing that. Yeah. Well, I think a, a thread through this conversation is one of your drivers is like knowing people's stories and connection and collaboration and partnership. And those things come from uh, nurturing and time and listening like there's no substitute for you know taking the time to hear someone's story and and be vested in in what's going on with them and and i think that you know being vested in your community and being able to you know ask good questions and so you know you wrote the book of the skill of end of life communication for clinicians but i think many of these things that are key to good conversation, like good communication in hard situations, which CEOs, I mean, there are a lot of hard things that fall on your lap. And, and I think it's like not shying away from that. And you use the word transparency and maybe I'll throw the word in as ethics too, since you're an ethicist. But I mean, I, I think you come from this perspective of there's no way but to face things head on and that um, nothing's going to be gained. There's going to be things that are lost if I don't, you know, 
make this decision or have this conversation. And I think that's a really good skill to have. And and maybe that gives you an iron backbone, but, but I still think it doesn't make it any less hard. And so I guess another thing, you know, what you said earlier on is sort of the burnout of, of being present and facilitating these conversations and helping people with end of life decisions, like that takes a burden uh, on, on someone. And so it's, it's really cool to see how you've been able to use your passion for end of life care and, but maybe not be at the bedside, but right. take that vision to sort of perhaps have a bigger impact, or maybe it's just a different impact of that you can still live this purpose in a, in a different way. Um, and, and sort of this next chapter of Kathleen Benton, right? Like Kathleen Benton, the CEO, and then who knows what's going to be after after that. But I mean, I think it's it's saying yes to opportunity because you took this job not having been a CEO before. And I'm sure lots of hiccups along the way. Like, I don't know how to read a balance sheet and like all these other things. I didn't get an MBA. I'm a lawyer. But, um, but you know, it's sort of someone who's driven to try new things and change, you, you didn't really shy away from that. And so I just remember the first time we met and um, you were like a ball of energy in terms of like ideas and and sort of no nonsense that was so refreshing. Um, and so, so um, but, but I guess as the last question I wanted to ask you is, is how do you stay inspired? Like you do what do yeah. you read or listen to or do that really keeps you that that fills you up? Yeah, and that's a I mean, truth be told, I mean, that's a hard question right now because I am very, you know, my cup is is quite empty. I mean, the COVID is <laughs> COVID was a drain, you yeah. know. And then the vaccines were a close second. But um, <laughs> but yeah, because my kids are six, eight, and ten. So I used to read once, one, one, you know, years ago. Um, but it's time is tough right now. That's a major balance between being a mom of younger kids and a and a CEO. Um, but I, you know, my family is all around me, and I and I have lots of friends in town as well. And um, I I just enjoy people. I mean, I I'm not someone that likes to be alone a whole bunch, although I do love yoga. So I will do yoga and I try to keep myself centered, although my husband would say that's a terrible job because <laughs> <laughs> I'm usually all over the place. But um, that's one thing. And then the other thing is being with those friends and family, you know, that 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 does fill me up because um, kids have a funny way of uh making you, and I do not mean this in the wrong way, but you'll probably take it in the wrong way. Um, kids have a funny way of making you excited for your job. You know, it's a different kind of work. Yeah. And, um, and it's a great balance actually, because when I'm at home, um, it seems like I'm just running in circles. You know, I'm cleaning the kitchen and the kitchen is not clean anymore. I'm cleaning. <laughs> I'm making a meal and then people need to be fed again. Yeah. So, and all that is, is really nourishing and fulfilling in a different way. And so that is over, you know, being able to go 
and build something and brainstorm and watch people grow in their position um, is something different than I see every day in my house. So I think the very thing that my family gives me and my friends give me is the ability to go back to it and do it all over and, um, you know, and see why I'm here. I, as hard as the job has been over the last two years, I don't wake up dreading work. I mean, I really, really like what I do. It's stressful many, many days, most days, but I still am happy. So there, you know, you're stressed and happy. Some people don't put those in the same category, but you, you know, you can be stressed and happy at the same time. Yeah. Um, so, and then the other thing is this place is such a challenge. Frankly, I mean, there's just no boredom. I mean, it's, it's just invigorating just because of the thinking that I have to do. So, um, and that might change in the years, but for now, that challenge is still very much alive and well. So I, I guess that's how, you know, I think right now we're all in a, in a tough spot and we all need, we all need to be refreshed and um, out in the world again. And I think, you know, that, that more than anything is a need for the greater community at large, but but I, I I count myself very lucky because I do have that balance and that's a blessing. I think balance isn't this perfect. Like this day I spent eight hours doing this and eight hours, you know, it's yeah, like, it's like you add it up and then hopefully it's balanced. But like day to day, I think it's, it's always hard <laughs> to say it's balanced, but I, I think an awareness of this is what I'm striving for and, and taking the time for, you know, what, what it is that feeds you. Um, but yeah, cause our lives are full of those moments of like making the dinner and like washing the dishes and, you know, those things. Again. And if you don't, if you can't take joy in that, then it's also like life is, if, if you just focus on like the big events, like the travel, the, this, the, that, you know, like you said to your kids, you know, the sexy stuff of life. I mean, it's going to be pretty empty because those things happen like 10 times. And then, right. you know, if you can't take joy sort of in those small things, those reoccurring things, it just, yeah, life isn't going to be very joyful. Um, so, so yeah, I think that's an awesome, awesome balance. Well, I, I so appreciate you taking the time out of your, your busy day to have this conversation. I, I really enjoyed it. And, um, you Me know, too. I think you're a really inspiring um, person that I can't wait to see, like in five years, what what is happening uh, with you. So I'd love to do another check-in uh, and see, you know, how you've conquered uh, the world since then. Um, Thank you. Anyway, thanks for your time. Thank you. Well, that's it for today's episode of Hospice Insights: The Law and Beyond. Thank you for joining the conversation. To subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at hushblackwell.com or sign up wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, may the wind be at your back. 